You know, it was year 2018 when me and Pastor Betty, we had the privilege to go to Jammu for a ministry trip. And during that trip, I was asked to preach on a Sunday. And after I preached, a lot of people came for prayer. And, you know, we ministers, we are trained in praying for people. So as people came, we, we prayed, we prayed for them. But there was this one person. Um, she said, Pastor, could you pray for me? And I said, sure. And the moment I began to pray, I had a few seconds and I saw that she had her phone on and the audio recording was on. It freaked me out. The reason why it freaked me out, I was like, God, I, I hope you will give me a good word. Because it put me in so much of pressure. Immediately it put me in so much of pressure. Right? Because if she's recording, that means she's going to go back and listen to it. So I can't just make the usual prayer. I was like, God, please give me a word. Please give me a good word. And what I want to tell you is, your expectation makes a demand on God's anointing. Your expectation will make a demand on God's anointing. You know, it's like, if you go abroad and by, by mistake you lose your passport, the first thing that you should do is contact the embassy. And you make a demand on the embassy. Regardless of who the ambassador is, fat, short, tall, regardless of how his temper is, if you make a demand on the embassy, being a citizen of India, the embassy of India needs to meet that demand. You have to understand this. So when you come with expectation, you are making a demand on God's anointing. It has nothing to do with the person. That's why Jesus said, if you receive a prophet as a prophet, in the name of a prophet, you shall receive the reward of a prophet. So, create an expectation. Yes, last night, you know, we had a long day here and we went home. And, you know, as a pastor, Saturdays are days of prayer, you know, supposed to pray, prepare. And I was praying. 30 minutes into the prayer, the Holy Spirit asked me, what are you praying for? What is your expectation? And that's when I realized, I have no expectation. I'm just praying because it's a, it's a mechanical thing. Your prayer cannot be answered without an expectation. That's why Jesus said, whatever you desire, whatever you ask for, what are you asking for? What is your expectation? I know that you came today to church because... It is Sunday and it is Christmas tomorrow. But do you have an expectation for God to fulfill in your life? Is there an expectation? Because as per your expectation, you are making a demand on God's power. If you don't have an expectation, God's power has nothing to do with you. That attitude does not work. You need to have an expectation. The Bible says in Psalms 2 was for ask of me and I shall give you nations as inheritance. Ask of me. Whoever asks, they shall be given. It shall be given to them. 
You need to ask. What's your expectation today? I have another story, you know. Some people came, new people, to church. And after the church got over, I was just speaking to them, just normally, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, just normal conversation. And I just said something from the Bible. Now, if a sentence has five words, for every word this person was saying, Amen. Wow, Amen. I took a moment to think, is that even that profound? I get it. It's, I just spoke from the word, but is that even that profound? It made, me, it made me doubt. But you know what? The following sentence that I said was a prophetic word for her. You know why? Even when I was not prepared, her expectation, the demand that she made from the Lord, that's what I'm saying. Look beyond this flesh. Look beyond this flesh. There's, there's a demand that you can make on the office of the shepherd, the office of the pastor. And you can receive what you need. One word from the Lord can transform your life. If one word from Peter can change the hearts of 3,000 people, the 3,000 people can be saved. Can you imagine what a word can do? One word. One word. Excited? Ready for the word? Come on. Awesome. You know, I usually don't get pressured for the festive days. But today I feel the pressure of talking about Christmas. Not, not the Christmas guy, but Christmas is a wonderful reminder. Amen? Uh, you know, we can argue and sit and talk about 25th December is not the day when Jesus was born. Yeah, I get it. But can we be reminded that Jesus was born on this day and it changed the history of mankind. Amen? Can we be reminded that Jesus was born and his birth brought healing. His birth brought deliverance. Amen? Amen. So, are you guys excited? The title of my message is Christmas is the story of redemption. Christmas is the story of redemption. The story of redemption. So Matthew chapter 1. When you read Matthew, he begins sharing his eyewitness of who Jesus is. He wants to talk about who Jesus is and he writes his accounts, his perspective, his, um, his experience with Jesus. And that's why he writes the book of Matthew. It was a letter so that he could in detail write all the incidents that he knows and that he had with Jesus. And Matthew chapter 1 is unique because he begins to talk about Jesus by sharing the lineage of Jesus. Because in those times it was important that when you talk about a character, you also talk about the family tree from which this character is coming from. And he begins right from the top, right from Adam, the son of God, and then he says, Adam gave birth to this, and this person fathered this person, and so on and so forth. He comes down to the lineage of Jesus. But what I, what I find interesting, and which really blew my mind 10 years ago when I read that account of genealogy, 
was the mention of four women. It's, it's unusual because when you write a lineage, when you write a genealogy, when you make a record of it, you don't talk about women. We come from a patriarchal society and in a society such as that, you only talk about the men. So if you read Genesis and you see all the genealogies that are mentioned, you never find the mention of women. It only talks about men. But in this one, this is special because it talks about four women very specifically. The first one is Tamar. The second is Rehab. The third is Ruth. And the fourth is Bathsheba. You know, what's interesting about these four women are none of them were Jewish. Doesn't that give us hope that Jesus came from a lineage that has Gentile women? They were not Jewish. They did not have a covenant with God. They did not have the promises of God. But yet they were included, included in the family tree of Jesus. What does that say? That you and me have hope. That we were always included in the plan of God. We were not an afterthought. We were always included in the plan of God. Always. And the other thing about these women is, <laughs> they had a questionable past. Each one of them had a questionable past. Either they came from a questionable background or they came from a questionable past. Let's talk about the first one, Tamar. Tamar was a Canaanite. And she was married to Judah's older son. If you remember the story of Judah, Judah is the son of Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. Judah's son, the oldest son, was married to Tamar. But the older son was so wicked that the Bible says that the Lord killed him. He was wicked. And because he died, now what happened in that culture was that women had no rights to property. They never had rights to inheritance. So the only way that they were protected and they were taken care of was when they were married because the rights that the husband had, they shared in those rights. So so Judah, as the father-in-law of Tamar, it was his responsibility to take care of Tamar when his son died. So what he did was, and which was very common in that culture, what he did was he asked his second son to marry Tamar. So his second son marries Tamar, and the Bible says that he, even he was wicked, so the Lord kills him. Tamar marries Two sons of Judah and both of them die. Think about what she is going through. Man, am I, am I the Jonah in the story? <laughs> and then Judah has a third son who's very young. He's a child. And Judah tells Tamar, when this child is old enough to get married, I'll get him married. But for now, you go back to your parents. But Judah had no intention of fulfilling that promise. She just, he just wanted to get rid of her. So what Tamar does is, this is interesting because I can't wrap my head around it. 
what Tamar does is she pretends to be a prostitute and has sex with her father-in-law and then is forced to get married to her father-in-law. And from that son is the lineage. Can you think about it? Here we talk about the righteousness of God and look at the background history from where Jesus comes from. She pretended to be a prostitute. Who does that? But Judah says what she did was righteous because even though her approach was wrong, she did it for justice. You don't have to understand this. You don't have to make sense of this. But what I'm trying to tell you is she is somebody who had a questionable past. She comes from a questionable background. The next story is the story of Rahab. <laughs> she was not pretending to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. Her career was a prostitute. She was into prostitution. Yet the Lord remembers her so that she could be put in the account of Jesus' family line. She was also a Canaanite who is a prostitute, but she gave birth to Boaz. And Boaz marries Ruth. Ruth in the Bible is, you know, celebrated as a good character, if you know. But Ruth comes from a, a country called Moab. Though Moabites were cursed people, and they were cursed because they came as a result of an incest relationship between Lot and his daughter. I'm talking so much about sex today. But you try to understand the background that they are coming from. Moabites were cursed. Ruth is a Moabite. And Ruth marries Boaz now. Ruth becomes the grandmother, great-great-grandmother of Jesus. The fourth one is Bathsheba. You know Bathsheba. Like her name says it all. You know, Bathsheba. Yeah, she's, she's popular for her... Yeah, her shower. Like King David had an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba when she was the wife of Uriah. And you know what I like about the Bible is, the Bible does not, does not hide things. It just says things as it is. Even when it is mentioning Bathsheba, it doesn't mention her by name. It says the wife of Uriah. Abraham did crazy things. He lied two times and still he's called the father of faith. David had an adulterous relationship with this woman and God calls him a man after my own heart. You see where I'm going? The Bible is not scared in revealing people's weaknesses and still the Lord does not turn his face away from them. These four women had a questionable past and a questionable background, yet they were listed in the names in the family tree of Jesus. What does that say? That whatever your past is, God has the ability 
and the integrity to redeem that. God can redeem your past. I'm reminded of Joseph, who did not rape anybody, but he lost his reputation and he was accused of rape. He was branded as a rapist for many years in the prison. Imagine that. And one day, God restores him to become a prime minister. How many times do we think that our past, our history, is the one that is stopping our promotion or, our, or, or an upgrade in life? Can I tell you, no matter what your past is, no matter what your background is, no matter what you have gone through, God has the ability to turn things around and to redeem you. He remembers. He remembers you. He remembers you. Just let to share this out of topic. But the Lord remembers you. You know, when Isaac and Rebecca got married, Rebecca was barren and Isaac prayed. And the Bible says, the Lord remembered. The Lord remembers you. If he remembers you, he can come into your life and redeem everything. Every impossible thing can become possible because nothing is impossible with God. The fifth person I want to talk to you about is Mary. Because she is also mentioned. Mary, the mother of Jesus. But I want you to see this account with her interaction with angel Gabriel. So Luke chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high and Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Next verse, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Another word is since I don't know a man, I don't have any sexual relationships, I'm not married. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he tells her of a testimony. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Do you know that the doctors had sent the medical report to Elizabeth saying that she is barren and that she cannot bear child. It is an impossibility for Elizabeth to bear child. But in their old age, she bore a child. She conceived a child. And this angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. The same God who did this miracle in John and Elizabeth's life is still alive today. He's not dead. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. Nothing is impossible with God. 
And look at how Mary responds to all of this. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a great response. She listens to this word. And can I tell you, it is not an it is not a common word for a virgin to have to have a baby without having sexual relationship other than just leave all of that but without having the protection of her husband because right now she's not married for her to receive such a word that she's going to be with a child she says let it be according to your word do you know when the word of the lord comes to you most people don't know how to respond to the word. I'm telling you, most people don't know how to respond to the word. Because they feel the pressure now because the word has come to me. Now I need to do something to do this. Can I tell you this? When the word comes to you, the word has the power in it to empower you to do the very same thing. Peter and John, they were walking towards the temple and they saw a lame man and the lame man was begging and they said, silver and gold we don't have but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. The word that they released had the power. He had to put faith in the words that they released. See, if you think Okay, I received this word. It sounds good. It's, it's a good upgrade from me. But how do I go up from, from here? The thing is, how do you respond to the word matters? How do you respond to the word? Because the power for you to do what the word commands you to do is in the word itself. God empowers you through his word. Look at Abraham. God told Abraham, you shall have a son. Where did the power come from? He saw his body. His body was as dead as anything could be. But the word that the Lord pronounced over his life had the power to bring supernatural resurrection. That's what you need to understand. When God tells you to do something, he does not tell you because he thinks that you have the power to do it. He tells you to do something because you don't have the power to do it. But the word in which he has commanded you has the empowerment for you to do it. So receive the word. Learn to receive the word first. Learn to receive the word. The word carries the power of God. The word carries the spirit of God. The word carries the faith that you require. Learn to receive the word. The first thing that Mary did was, let it be to me according to your word. That's the very first thing. Don't be scared of the word. So if the word tells you to be generous, don't be scared of it. If the word tells you to share the gospel, don't be scared of it. How, how will it be? Don't be scared of it. You receive the word, you stay on the word, the word will give you the empowerment to do it. Amen. Now, how did the angel address Mary? He addressed her as highly favored. 
So Mary was addressed as the favored one. How many of you want the favor of God? Highly favored. Okay. Listen to this. Mary probably at this time was 14, 15 years old. 14, 15 years old, getting pregnant in a society, in a culture of shame and honor. Just imagine the kind of trauma that she's going through. She is ostracized by her parents. The favor of God. She's highly favored. She is chosen from a crowd, a spotlight from heaven has come. But because that spotlight has come, think about the challenges that she has to go through. I'm telling you, if you receive God's favor, God's favor will give you the strength to overcome those challenges. But if you haven't made up the mind to overcome those challenges, don't ask for favor. Mary was ostracized. Where did she give birth? Where did she give birth? She gave birth in a manger. Do you know what's a manger? A manger is where animals are fed. There was no place in the hotel rooms because they were all booked and Joseph forgot to reserve like usual husbands do. He was waiting for the last minute. Do you call that favor? In the middle of the night, Mary had to run with her newborn baby and the husband to Egypt because the king of Herod was after their life. This is what favor will do. And finally, finally, she sees her own son. Can, can you imagine what goes in the mind of a mother regardless of who that son is? Imagine the plight of a mother to see his, her own son on the cross, naked, beat, bruised, taking his last breath. Favor. Favor. But do you know what? It was all worth it. It was all worth it. It was all worth it for the redemption of the, an entire mankind. It was worth it. It was worth it. What I want to tell you is, you know, when you ask God's favor, I'm telling you, yes, ask for God's favor. But have the mindset to overcome challenges. Because favor does not, does not free you from challenges. Favor storm-proofs you from challenges. You do not become challenge-free, you become challenge-proof. There will be fire, but you will be fire-proof. There will be storms, but you are storm-proof. The wind will come, but you will be wind-proof. So don't try to escape from your problems, because those challenges, those problems are a stepping stone into your destiny. Amen? Favor, favor is dangerous, my friends. I tell you, favor is dangerous. I don't think anybody had the strength to do what Mary could do. That's why she was highly favored. Highly favored. That's why I'm telling you, Christmas is a story of redemption. Regardless of your past, regardless of your questionable background, regardless of the 
of what the medical report says and regardless of what the world calls you, it is a story of redemption, a story of, of impossibility becoming a possibility. John 1 verse 14. John 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word is Jesus. Because if you read John 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, the word, the Greek word for word is logos, which means a living expression, or it means the wisdom, or the, or the you know, the... The word of God that was spoken to create the entire cosmos. So Jesus is the living expression of the invisible God. Living expression. He is the complete, full, living expression of the invisible God in flesh. So this thing, the word became flesh, was a new thing for the Jews and the Greek. Because they thought that God was so transcendental that he could not become flesh. Why would he want to do anything to do with flesh? Because flesh is limited. So if the word became flesh, what does that tell you? That God stepped into your mess so that he can pull, in, pull you into his glory. That's one. Second, by him becoming flesh, he's trying to tell us that he does not want to have a separation with the flesh. The flesh was always God's plan A. Flesh was not an afterthought. Flesh was always God's plan A. God loves the flesh. He, he created your body. So this body is not a third class thing that is just going to die and you're going to worship in your spirit. No. We are going to worship God in our flesh. Say with me, in our flesh. That's why when Jesus died and he resurrected, he did not just come in his spiritual being. He came with a new body, but it was a body indeed. God loves flesh. He relates to humanity with its weakness, with its infirmities, with all the mess that the flesh makes. God relates to humanity. And finally, why did he take on flesh? He took on flesh. Because till then he did not have flesh, right? So when the word finally became flesh, he took on flesh so that he could die. The word became flesh so that the word could die on our behalf. And look at this. When finally Jesus is resurrected, and he is ascending back to heaven to be with the Father. He does not go in his spirit form. He takes his flesh with him. What does that say? In the presence of the Father, there is a place for flesh. Now when I'm talking about flesh, I'm talking about the physical body. What Paul talks about Romans 8, flesh, the mindset of the flesh is death. That is not talking about the physical body. That is talking about the attitude of separation. It's a mindset of separation that I can do everything on my own. It's the attitude of rebellion. Even though it's the same word, comes from the same Greek word, sarx, 
it means two different things when John writes and when Paul writes. When Paul is writing, using the word, he's talking about the confidence that we put in the flesh that I can do it. That is harmful. Because God, I'm telling you, God's power is not limited by our sin. God's power is not even limited by our weakness, but God's power will be limited by our rebellion. God's power will be limited by our pride. So Paul was addressing the pride issue of the flesh. But John, when he talks about flesh, he's talking about the physical body. The word became flesh. The word stepped into a physical realm. Why? Why did the word become flesh? Because God wants to have an intimate relationship with us. God wants to have an intimate relationship. He wants to have proximity. Proximity. He wants to be close to you. Isn't that amazing? He wants to be close to you. In, in the Old Testament, people knew God as somebody who was for them, who was on their team, who would back them up. Even if they did ridiculous things, they were confident that God would back them up. God was on their team. So they would fight battles and they would say, Lord, crush their enemies' skulls, throw their babies into the ditches. You know, they had no grace because they had the revelation that God was in their team. God was for them. But with the arrival of Jesus, now the revelation has changed from God is with us. That God is not just in your team. He is with you. He's standing with you. He's close to you. He wants to be in proximity with you. He's in relationship with you. So for three and a half years, he was eating and partying and dancing with the disciples to show them that I, I am human. And in fact, I am the perfect human. You want to know what human is? Look at me. As much as you want to know who the perfect God is, look at me. Look at me to see what, what it means to be truly human. So from God is for us, to God is with us. Are you with me? Let me show you a verse. Mark chapter 1. Verse 7. Mark chapter 1. Verse 7. This is John the Baptist. He preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Jews know that God was for them. With the arrival of Jesus, God was with us, Emmanuel. Now, the agenda of Jesus is not just to be with you, but he wants to be in you. So that wherever you go, you go to the desert of the Middle East or you are stranded in an ocean, God will be not just with you, God will be inside of you. To a point, to a point, the word baptism means, comes from the Greek word baptizo, which means, you know, how a cloth takes the color of the dye. You immerse the cloth in a, in a liquid of dye. And after a while, when you take the cloth out, the cloth carries the same 
characteristics of the die. That is what baptism means. God does not just want to be in you and to be safely located in some portion of your heart and be like, yeah, I have a residence. No, God wants to be in you so that every being of you, your spirit, soul, your body, your emotions, your heart, your mind, your willpower, your determination, everything that you have is immersed in the spirit of God. So that it carries the nature of God. It carries the power of God. That is what God wants to do in your life. So the word did not just become flesh. The word could just become and be a friend to you. The word became flesh so that you will be baptized in the spirit of that word so that the word will begin to express completely itself through you. God wants to express himself through you. God is invisible, but he wants to express himself through you. Have you heard people say, show me Jesus. If I could see Jesus, I would believe in him. That is the challenge of every child of God. To say, I want to express who God is. I want to express the full the fullness, the full extent of God's glory. That, my friends, is our Christian mandate. Our Christian agenda is not just to get to heaven one day. The Christian agenda is that I want to receive the fullness of God so that when I walk, people see the glory of God in my life and they encounter the presence of God. Amen. The Bible says that Jesus prayed an entire night. And then he chose his disciples. And look at whom he chooses. Peter, who makes quick decisions, who has a bad temper. Judas, who betrayed him. John and James, who are willing to call down fire. Look at all these guys, imperfect guys. None of them stayed when Jesus needed him. Everybody ran. Only one stayed. One person denied. One person betrayed. Did Jesus make a mistake? No. Why, why do we say no? Because history tells us. History tells us that Jesus did not make a mistake. But if you were living in those times, and if you were not a disciple of Jesus, and you were in the outer circle, you would have definitely said, Some, I know he's, he can do crazy things, but I think he made a wrong choice in choosing these people, right? That's how sometimes you feel that about me, right? Yeah, meaning, I get it. <laughs> but, just think about this. If these 11 disciples could, could turn the world upside down, who did not have money, who did not have the resources, who did not have the influence, who did not have the education, if they could turn the world upside down, what can God do through you? See, God does not require people who are perfect. God does not require people who can speak well or who have a good background. You heard the stories of how God 
redeemed people with questionable character, questionable background, questionable past, God can redeem your life too. Your story of mess can become a testimony for somebody else. It can. All that God requires is for you to say, yes, yes, I'm available. I'm available. Because every time you come to God, God has only one thing to give. Every time you come to God for healing, you come to God for finances, you come to God for anything, God has only one thing to give. Abraham came to God for a child. Moses came to God for instruction. Jacob wrestled with God for a blessing. The lost son came back home to have food. Bartimaeus cried out so that he could be healed. But do you know, in return, God gave him his presence. It's in his presence that whatever you need becomes your solution. Amen? Abraham is up on this mountain because God asked him to sacrifice his son. And as he's about to sacrifice, he has this revelation. The Lord provides. Because in substitute to, who, to his son, there's a, there's a lamb there, there's a sacrifice ready. And he has this revelation that the Lord provides. In fact, Yahweh Ire does not just mean Lord provides. It means Lord has become your provision. What you need today is not more of anything. What you need today is just God. Because God can become the very thing that you need. You know, Yahweh Nisi means the victory of God. It actually means the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my victory. Yahweh Shalom means the Lord who gives peace. It actually means the Lord who has become my peace. What you need is God. Because when you receive God, God becomes the very thing that you need. You need peace, God can become peace for you. You need provision, God can become your provision for you. You need healing, God can become your healing. When you come to God for these things, He does not reject you and He says, Oh, get your prayers right and then I'll answer you. No! But in return, he always gives himself. And when he gives himself, that very person of God becomes the very thing that we need. All that you need today is his word. Because his word is his person. That's what Jesus said. If you abide in me and if you abide in my words, then I'll abide in you. How do you abide in God? is by abiding in his words. How do you abide in God's word? How, meaning, how do you abide in God who is invisible? Is by abiding in the words that you have received. It's like for all the married men who know that when they were courting their women, every word that their women spoke, they abided in them. They meditated in them. If you can't resonate, let me tell you my story. Six months before our wedding, you know, we were quoting each other. And every word she spoke was like 
was like something. I meditated on it. I, I did not just read it once. I read it ten times. In a day, I probably read it again. Oh, maybe she meant that. And I'm contemplating everything, every word that she wrote, even the spelling that she wrote. She, if she said, if she put in an extra O, that meant something. Why? Because as I'm abiding in the words that she say, I'm becoming one with her in my heart, in my mind. How do you abide with God who is invisible? By abiding in His Word. Meditating on His Word. Amen? The birth of Jesus is the story of redemption. Not just for those women, but for, it's a story of redemption for us. It's a good news. If it can happen in their life, it can happen with us. In fact, it has already happened with us. Jesus already redeemed your story. It's done. It's finished. Amen. Are you blessed? Come on, let us arise. Stand up on your feet. If you are someone who resonated with the word and you think that this word is for you, just receive it and just declare with me right now, thank you, Jesus, for redeeming my life. Come on, say it again. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming my life. Thank you, Jesus, for you have redeemed my past. Thank you, O Lord. Now I have a glorious future. My hope is not cut off. I have a glorious future. Because you have become my future. We receive you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.